In preparation for our reading of our sermon text today from the Gospel of Luke, we'll we'll turn first to the book of Leviticus, the Old Testament book of Leviticus, chapter 19, beginning at verse 9 and reading through verse 18. God says to his people, Now when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field, Neither shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest, nor shall you glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather the fallen fruit of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the needy and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal, nor deal falsely, nor lie to one another, and you shall not swear falsely by my name, so as to profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor, nor rob him. The wages of a hired man are not to remain with you all night until morning. You shall not curse a deaf man, nor place a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall revere your God. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor defer to the great, but you shall judge your neighbor fairly. You shall not Go about as a slanderer among your people, and you are not to act against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor, but shall not incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And now we turn to the Gospel according to Luke, beginning at verse 25. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied and said, A certain man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him, and went off leaving him half dead. And by chance a certain priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him he passed by on the other side. And likewise a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, who was on a journey, came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion, and came to him, and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And on the next day he took out two denarii, and gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him. 
and whatever more you spend when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, The one who showed mercy toward him. And Jesus said to him, Go and do the same. Amen. May God add his blessing to this reading of his word. The encounter of Jesus with this very competent lawyer, a school-trained expert not merely in Judaism or any other merely human legal tradition, but expert in God's holy law, it gives us an excellent example of the timelessness of Jesus' teaching. The teaching of Jesus on the kingdom of God never grows stale. It never grows old. It never grows obsolete. It never loses its edge. So here in San Antonio, 2,000 years later, the law of God proceeding from the lips of Jesus our King still cuts, still cuts deeply. It cuts to the quick, to the sinner's heart. Because even though human cultures change with the passage of time and place so that even Christians today may know very little about priests and Levites and even less about these Samaritans, the desperate need of the corrupt human heart never changes, generation after generation, century after century. We're not getting any better on our own. The inborn corruption of humanity hasn't miraculously evolved out of us, and it never will on its own. So whatever priests and Levites and Samaritans may be, we all know very well what thieves are. We know all too well what it is to be beaten up. We know what it is to be left half dead by the roadside. Because those things still happen. Here and now, in San Antonio. And we still know how unspeakably precious human compassion is on those rare occasions when you actually experience it. Compassion that goes beyond the cheap and easy abstract of mere discussion into the hard and expensive doing of it. In this fallen world, the callous bumper sticker proverb is true. Life is hard, and then you die. For that reason... The teaching by which Jesus addresses all these crying human needs never grows dull with age. He offers solutions for life's hardness. He offers solutions for life's hardness even as far as death. He has answers. Now Jesus has already begun his journey southward to Jerusalem and the cross. He's been teaching and healing. He's been demonstrating the glorious kingdom of God all along the way. And a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, it may be a little hard on first reading to see how this particular question puts Jesus to the test. It seems like such an innocent question. It's a good question, a very good question, but look at it this way. 
If Jesus' answer were to go beyond the published law of God, or if he puts his own individual rabbinical spin on it, or if he leaves out the main point of how one might actually, biblically, come into possession of eternal life, then those additions or subtractions from the clear teaching of God's law might potentially serve as grounds to discredit him, as a heretic, perhaps, or a renegade, or a loose cannon, because the living and true God who gave Israel his law, in Leviticus 18, 4 and 5, and elsewhere, he was absolutely clear on the matter of how we might come into possession of eternal life. What did he say? He said this, You are to perform my judgments and keep my statutes to live in accord with them. I am the Lord your God. So you shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man may live if he does them. I am the Lord. So the question is, Will Jesus answer with the orthodoxy of God's own word on the matter, the orthodoxy of strict obedience to the law of God, or will he spout the heresy of cheap grace, the heresy of easy believism, or anything else that falls short of the mark? That's the test. Will Jesus hold to the published word of God? But whatever the lawyer's motives in asking it, the question considered by itself is an excellent question, isn't it? If only more people were asking this question with the right motives. What shall I do to come into possession of eternal life? Because this one I'm living at the moment is passing by so quickly. And I'm running out of time to ask about eternity. It seems like just the day before yesterday I was a healthy young lad. And for all the thought I gave the matter, which wasn't very much, I was going to live forever in this strikingly handsome, healthy, young, trouble-free body. And now suddenly I'm going to be 50, or 60, or 70. And I realize there's more sand in the bottom of the hourglass than the top. What shall I do to be saved? What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus has already started southward toward Jerusalem and the cross. We've seen beginning in the ninth chapter how it was his practice to send messengers ahead of him along the route he intended to take, and we saw the difficulty those messengers ran into when they tried to arrange for this passage through one of the cities of Samaria. Verses 53 and 54 give us a pretty clear picture of the antipathy that went both ways between the Samaritans and the Jews. It says they did not receive Jesus because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. When his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, 
Do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? So there's not a great deal of love lost there, is there? This isn't simple racism, which might merely take the form of recognizing and acknowledging the plain and obvious differences that exist among the various families of men. No, this is far, far worse than racism. This is unkindness. This is unneighborliness. And obviously it's unneighborliness in the extreme. Hatred is a very strong and much overused word today, but that's what this looks like. Hatred. And hatred tends to look to history for its justification. certainly does in these United States among various groups, and it did in the land of Judea as well. The answer to the question as to who exactly these Samaritans were is given to us in Second Kings chapter 17 and verse 24. After Shalmaneser, the king of Assyria, in 722 B.C., conquered and then deported the ten northern tribes of Israel, never to return again as a distinct people, it says this, The king of Assyria brought men from Babylon, and from Kutha, and from Ava, and from Hamath, and Sepharvaim, and settled them in the cities of Samaria, in place of the sons of Israel. So they possessed Samaria and lived in its cities. So these Samaritans were Gentiles, not Jews. They're foreigners. And much worse, they're pagans. And even worse, they happen to occupy God's land given of old Abraham and his seed. And if, as some think, the Samaritans were a mixed breed of people, almost but not quite Jews, the true Jews would very easily explain that in terms of these despicable pagan occupiers coming in uninvited and stealing away our eligible young sons and daughters, polluting the true seed of our father Jacob, and so on. Men were no better or worse then and there than they are here and now in terms of the sinful human bent toward this unneighborliness. Now with this historical background on the Samaritans in mind, we now return to the lawyer's excellent question. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus meets a very good question with a very good answer. The best of all possible answers, in fact, because it forces the student back into the scriptures. It forces us to think it through for ourselves. He says, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? I sometimes wonder how many foolish and time-consuming theological arguments would immediately short-circuit and collapse if this were the course we took in our arguments. Isaiah means no words when, by inspiration, he pointed the way through the dark woods and murky waters of our typical theological discourse. 
What he said was, to the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. So if our theological debates don't begin and end with God's own holy word, you can be sure there will be plenty of heat generated by the discussion, but no light. What you and I think about things has no power to generate light. So Jesus doesn't play ping pong with the man. He doesn't say, well, what do you think? What's your position on the matter? Because the fact of the matter is our position on this or any other theological question is absolutely of no consequence. The question is, what stands written in the law? If you find that, you'll have your answer as to eternal life. And the lawyer answers well. Notice that. He's an orthodox guy. He's been to the best schools. He knows the main heads of his systematic theology. And he knows probably how all the subordinate points support and cohere together within the literary corpus of the Old Testament. His theology is beautiful. It's a theological masterpiece. That's what we have in verse 27. And we have Jesus' equally orthodox biblical commendation of the man's good theology in verse 28. But sometimes we tip our hand in our theological disputations, don't we? We may have spoken well, we may have given good, sound answers, but some little word either spoken or left unspoken some facial expression as we debate, some gesture may on occasion give the sinner away. That his hands aren't entirely clean in the matter being discussed, nor his heart pure. And so it was with this very orthodox man. He poses his excellent question to Jesus, and he gets from Jesus an excellent response. And he gives his own very orthodox, very reformed answer. But there's more to this man than that innocent question of verse 25. He knows the right answer. He gives the right answer. And he receives from Jesus commendation for the right answer. The problem for us, biblically orthodox Reformed, Calvinistic Christians comes in whenever the straight edge of God's law impinges on the various contours of our own sin. I know that this is the way to life. The Bible tells me so. I know I have to love the Lord my God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my strength, and with all my mind. I know I've got to love my neighbor as myself, the one who keeps these words, will live by them. That's what the law says. But the very good lawyer with a very good question didn't. And neither did Luther, neither did Calvin, neither do you or I. We don't do these things. So we privately fish around for any possible loopholes to convince ourselves, if we can, that God didn't really say or mean what he very clearly and plainly did. 
For instance, the lawyer's follow-on question. And who is my neighbor? To which Jesus responds with this parable that will live forever. The parable of the Good Samaritan. You already know it very well. I won't elaborate on it and so spoil its immediate impact on the sinner's soul. But I'll tell you this. Biblical orthodoxy may be the means God uses to get you registered in the race, but words alone will never get you out of the starting box. Jesus said not believe this and you will live in verse 28. He didn't say go thou and think likewise in verse 37. The Christian life is about doing. We are to be single-minded men of action, deeds, not words. We may argue, if we were of a mind to, as to why the glorious kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ isn't today the single most influential factor driving and shaping Western culture. We may debate the reasons the church of the 20th and 21st centuries has lain, as it were, prostrate, immobile, almost comatose, on its bed of desperate sickness. But can we agree, as Jesus and the lawyer who tested him agreed, that the answers to life's most pressing questions are to be found on the pages of the Bible? What about this very good question about eternal life? Does bare-bones orthodoxy have the power to save you? Does it have the power to save others? Will our good words alone draw them into the light and warmth and safety of God's own family, his household? A priest saw the pressing need of a desperately injured man and passed by. On the other side, a Levite as well, but a Samaritan, a Samaritan, of all people, saw the same pressing need and he spent himself in the hard, inconvenient, expensive business of fixing it, of loving his neighbor. He went beyond orthodoxy to orthopraxy, beyond words to deeds. He showed mercy. That's the hard Right answer to the lawyer's evasive question, who is my neighbor? Is obtaining eternal life of any interest to you? If it is, then have an open eye to the needs of your neighbor. Have an open heart, an open hand. And following Jesus on his way to the cross, go and do the same. Amen.